0: Section Two of the Natural History, Volume Five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Natural History, Volume Five by Pliny the Elder. Translated by John Bostock and Henry Thomas Riley. Section Two. Book Twenty One. Chapters Ten. To 21 chapter 10 the rose twelve varieties of it the people of our country were acquainted with but very few garland flowers among the garden plants and those few hardly any but the violet and the rose the plant which bears the rose is properly speaking more of a thorn than a shrub indeed we sometimes find it growing on a bramble even the flower having, even then, a pleasant smell, though by no means penetrating. The flower in all roses is originally enclosed in a bud, with a grain surface within, which gradually swells and assumes the form of a green-pointed cone, similar to our alabaster unquined boxes in shape. Gradually, acquiring a ruddy tint, this bud opens little by little, until at last it comes into full blow, developing the calyx and embracing the yellow-pointed filaments which stand erect in the centre of it. The employment of the rose in chaplets is, so to say, the least use that is made of it. The flower is steeped in oil, a practice which has prevailed from the times of the Trojan War, as Homer bears witness, in addition to which, it now forms an ingredient in our unguents, as mentioned on a previous occasion. It is employed also by itself for certain medicinal purposes, and is used in plasters and eye-salves for its penetrating qualities. It is used also to perfume the delicacies of our banquets, and is never attended with any noxious results. The most esteemed kinds of rose among us are those of Praeneste and campania some persons have added to these varieties the rose of miletus the flower of which is an extremely brilliant red and has never more than a dozen petals the next to it is the rose of Trachine, not so red as the last and then that of alabanda with whitish petals but not so highly esteemed the least esteemed of all however is the thorn rose the petals of which are numerous but extremely small the essential points of difference in the rose are the number of the petals the comparative number of thorns on the stem the color and the smell the number of the petals which is never less than five goes on increasing in amount till we find one variety with as many as a hundred and thence known as centifolia In Italy it is to be found in Campania and in Greece in the vicinity of Philippi, though this last is not the place of its natural growth. Mount Pangeus, in the same vicinity, produces a rose with numerous petals of diminutive size. The people of those parts are in the habit of transplanting it, a method which greatly tends to improve its growth. This kind, however is not remarkable for its smell nor yet is the rose which has a very large or very broad petal indeed we may state in a few words that the best proof of the perfume of the flower is the comparative roughness of the calyx cipio who lived in the reign of the emperor tiberius asserts that the centifolia is never employed for chaplets except at the extreme points of union as it were being remarkable neither for its smell nor its beauty. There is another variety of rose, too, called the Grecian rose by our people, and likeness by the Greeks. It grows nowhere except in humid soils, and has never more than five petals. It does not exceed the violet in size, and is destitute of smell. There is another kind again, known to us as the Greacula, the petals of which are tightly rolled together and which never open except when pressed in the hand, it having always the appearance, in fact, of being in bud. The petals of it are remarkably large. Another kind, again, springs from a stem like that of the mallow, the leaves being similar to those of the olive. The name given to it is macetum. There is the rose of autumn, too, known to us as the coroniola which is of a middle size between the varieties just mentioned all these kinds however are destitute of smell with the exception of the coroniola and the one which grows on the bramble so extended is the scope for fictitious productions and indeed the genuine rose for the most part is indebted for its qualities to the nature of the soil that of Sirenia is the most odoriferous of all, and hence it is that the onguents of that place are so remarkably fine. At Carthage, again, in Spain, there are early roses throughout all the winter. The temperature, too, of the climate is not without its influence. For in some years we find the roses much less odoriferous than in others, in addition to which Their smell is always more powerful when grown in dry soils than in humid ones. The rose does not admit of being planted in either a rich or an argillaceous soil, nor yet on irrigated land, being contended with a thin, light earth and more particularly attached to ground on which old building rubbish has been laid. The rose of Campania is early that of Miletus late, but it is the rose of Praeneste that goes off the very latest of all. For the rose, the ground is generally dug to a greater depth than it is for corn, but not so deep as for the vine. It grows but very slowly from the seed, which is found in the calyx beneath the petals of the flower, covered with a sort of down. Hence it is that the method of grafting is usually the one preferred, or else propagation from the eyes of the root, as in the reed. One kind is grafted, which bears a pale flower with thorny branches of a remarkable length. It belongs to quinquefolia variety, being one of the Greek roses. All roses are improved by being pruned and cauterized. Transplanting, too, makes them grow like the vine, all the better, and with the greatest rapidity the slips are cut some four fingers in length or more and are planted immediately after the setting of the vergilia then while the west winds are prevalent they are transplanted at intervals of a foot the earth being frequently turned up about them persons whose object it is to grow early roses make a hole a foot in width about the root and pour warm water into it at the period when the buds are beginning to put forth chapter eleven the lily four varieties of it the lily holds the next highest rank after the rose and has a certain affinity with it in respect of its unguent and the oil extracted from it which is known to us as lyrinon blended too with roses the lily produces a remarkably fine effect, for it begins to make its appearance, in fact, just as a rose is in the very middle of its season. There is no flower that grows to a greater height than the lily, sometimes indeed as much as three cubits, the head of it being always drooping, as though the neck of the flower were unable to support its fate. The whiteness of the lily is quite remarkable the petals being striated on the exterior. The flower is narrow at the base and gradually expanding in shape like a tapering cup with the edges curving outwards, the fine pistils of the flower and the stamens with their antheraia of the saffron color standing erect in the middle. Hence, the perfume of the lily, as well as its color, is twofold there being one for the petals, another for the stamens. The difference, however, between them is but very small, and when the flower is employed for making lily unguents and oils, the petals are never rejected. There is a flower, not unlike the lily, produced by the plant known to us as the Convolvulus. It grows among shrubs, is totally destitute of smell, and has not, the yellow antherae of the lily within, only vying with it in its whiteness, it would almost appear to be a rough sketch made by nature when she was learning how to make a lily. The white lily is propagated in all the various ways which are employed for the cultivation of the rose, and also by means of a certain tear like gum which belongs to it, similarly to Hippocyllinum, in fact. Indeed, there is no plant that is more prolific than this, a single root, often giving birth to as many as fifty bulbs. There is also a red lily, known by the name of Crinon, to the Greeks, though there are some authors who call the flower of it Kinorodon. The most esteemed are those of Antiochia and Laodicea and Syria. And next to them that of Phaselis, To the fourth rank belongs the flower that grows in Italy. CHAPTER Twelve, THE NARCISSUS. THREE VARIETIES OF IT. There is a purple lily, too, which sometimes has a double stem. It differs only from the other lilies in having a more fleshy root and a bulb of larger size, but undivided. The name given to it is Narcissus. A second variety of this lily has a white flower with a purple corolla. There is also this difference between the ordinary lily and the narcissus, that in the latter the leaves spring from the root of the plant. The finest are those which grow on the mountains of Lycia. A third variety is similar to the others in every respect, except that the corolla of the plant is green. They are all of them late flowers, indeed, They only bloom after the setting of Arcturus and at the time of the autumnal equinox. Chapter 13. How seed is stained to produce tinted flowers. There has been invented also a method of tinting the lily, thanks to the taste of mankind for monstrous productions. The dried stalks of the lily are tied together in the month of July and hung up in the smoke. Then, in the following March, When the small knots are beginning to disclose themselves, the stalks are left steep in the leaves of black or Greek wine, in order that they may contract its color, and are then planted out in small trenches, some semi-sectary of wine-leaves being poured around them. By this method purple lilies are obtained, it being a very remarkable thing that we should be able to dye a plant to such a degree as to make it produce a colored flower. Chapter 14 How the several varieties of the violet are respectively produced, grown and cultivated, the three different colors of the violet, the five varieties of the yellow violet. Next, after the roses and the lilies, the violet is held in the highest esteem. Of this, there are several varieties, the purple, the the yellow and the white, all of them reproduced from plants like the cabbage. The purple violet, which springs up spontaneously in sunny spots with a thin, meagre soil, has larger petals than the others, springing immediately from the root, which is of a fleshy substance. This violet has a name, too, distinct from the other wild kinds, being called Eon, and from it the eanthine cloth takes its name. Among the cultivated kinds, the yellow violet is held in the greatest esteem. The Tuscalan violet and that known as the marine violet have petals somewhat broader than the others, but not so odoriferous. The calatian violet, too, which has a smaller leaf, is entirely destitute of smell. This last is a present to us from the autumn the others from the spring. Chapter 15 The Caltha, the Scoparegia Next to it comes the Caltha, the flowers of which are of similar color and size. In the number of its petals, however, it surpasses the marine violet, the petals of which are never more than five in number. The marine violet is surpassed, too, by the other in smell. That of the Caltha being very powerful, the smell too is no less powerful in the plant known as the scoparigia, but there it is the leaves of the plant and not the flowers that are odoriferous. Chapter sixteen The Bacchar, the Combretum asarum, the Becker too, by some persons known as Fieldnard, is odoriferous in the root only. In former times it was the practice to make unguents of this root, as we learn from the poet Aristophanes, a writer of the ancient comedy, from which circumstance some persons have erroneously given the name of exotic to the plant. The smell of it strongly resembles that of cinnamonum, and the plant grows in thin soils which are free from all humidity. The name of combretum is given to a plant, that bears a very strong resemblance to it, the leaves of which taper to the finest of threads. In height, however, it is taller than the becker. Those are the only. The error, however, ought to be corrected on the part of those who have bestowed upon the becker the name of Fieldnard, for that in reality is the surname given to another plant, known to the Greeks as Asaron, the description and features of which we have already mentioned when speaking of the different varieties of nard i find too that the name of Asarun has been given to this plant from the circumstance of its never being employed in the composition of chaplets chapter seventeen saffron in what places it grows best what flowers were known at the time of the trojan war the wild saffron is the best Indeed, in Italy it is of no use whatever to attempt to propagate it, the produce of a whole bed of saffron being boiled down to a single scruple. It is reproduced by offsets from the bulb. The cultivated saffron is larger, finer, and better looking than the other kinds, but has much less efficiency. This plant is every word degenerating, and is far from prolific, at Cyrenea, even, a place, where the flowers are always of the very finest quality. The most esteemed saffron, however, is that of Kilikia, and there of Mount Coricus in particular. Next comes the saffron of Mount Olympus in Lycia, and then of Centuripa in Sicily. Some persons, however, have given the second rank to the Phlegrean saffron. There is nothing so much adulterated as saffron. The best proof of its goodness is, when it snaps under pressure by the fingers, as though it were friable. For when it is moist, a state which it owes to being adulterated, it is limp and will not snap asunder. Another way of testing it, again, is to apply it with the hand to the face, upon which, if good, it will be found to be slightly caustic to the face and eyes. There is a peculiar kind, too, of cultivated saffron, which is in general extremely mild. Being only of middling quality, the name given to it is Dialoicon. The saffron of Kyrenaica again is faulty in the opposite extreme, for it is darker than any other kind, and is apt to spoil very quickly. The best saffron everywhere is that which is of the most anxious quality and these filaments of which are the shortest, divorced being that which emits a musty smell. Mucianus informs us that in Lycia, at the end of seven or eight years, the saffron is transplanted into a piece of ground, which has been prepared for the purpose. It is prevented from degenerating. It is never used for chaplets, being a plant with an extremely narrow leaf, as fine almost the hair, but it combines remarkably well with wine sweet wine in particular reduced to a powder it is used to perfume the theatres saffron blossoms about the setting of the vergilia for a few days only the leaf expelling the flower it is verdant at the time of the winter solstice and then it is that they gather it it is usually dried in the shade and if in winter all the better The root of this plant is fleshy and more long-lived than that of the other bulbous plants. It loves to be beaten and trodden under foot, and in fact, the worse it is treated, the better it thrives. Hence it is that it grows so vigorously by the side of footpaths and fountains. Saffron was already held in high esteem in the time of the Trojan War. At all events, Homer, we find, makes mention of these three flowers— the lotus, the saffron, and the hyacinth. Chapter 18. The Nature of Odors All the odoriferous substances, and consequently the plants, differ from one another in their color, smell, and juices. It is but rarely that the taste of an odoriferous substance is not bitter, while sweet substances, on the other hand, are but rarely odoriferous. Thus it is, too, That wine is more odoriferous than must, and all the wild plants more so than the cultivated ones. Some flowers have a sweet smell at a distance, the edge of which is taken off when they come nearer. Such is the case with the violet, for instance. The rose, when fresh gathered, has a more powerful smell at a distance and dried when brought nearer. All plants have a more penetrating odor also in spring, and in the morning, as the hour of midday approaches, the scent becomes gradually weakened. The flowers, too, of young plants are less odoriferous than those of old ones, but it is at mid-age that the odor is most penetrating in them all. The rose and the crocus have a more powerful smell when gathered in fine weather, and all plants are more powerfully scented in hot climates than in cold ones. In Egypt, however, the flowers are far from odoriferous, owing to the dews and exhalations with which the air is charged, in consequence of the extended surface of the river. Some plants have an agreeable, though at the same time extremely powerful smell. Some, again, while green, have no smell at all, owing to the excess of moisture, the bukeros, for example, which is the same as fenugreek. Not all flowers which have a penetrating odor are destitute of juices. The violet, the rose, and the crocus, for example. Those, on the other hand, which have a penetrating odor but are destitute of juices have all of them a very powerful smell, as we find the case with the two varieties of the lily. The Abrotonum and the Amaracus have a pungent smell. In some plants It is the flower only that is sweet, the other parts being inodorous. the violet and the rose, for example. Among the garden plants the most odoriferous are the dry ones, such as rue, mint, and parsley, as also those which grow on dry soils. Some fruits become more odoriferous the older they are, the quince, for example, which has also a stronger smell when gathered than while upon this tree. Some plants, again, have no smell but when broken asunder, or when bruised, and others only when they are stripped of their bark. Certain vegetable substances, too, only give out a smell when subjected to the action of fire, such as frankincense and myrrh, for example. All flowers are more bitter to the taste when bruised than when left untouched. Some plants preserve their smell a longer time when dried, the melilote, for example, others again make the place itself more odoriferous when they grow, the iris, for instance, which will even render the whole of a tree odoriferous, the roots of which it may happen to have touched. The hesperis has a more powerful odor at night, a property to which it owes its name. Among the animals, we find none that are odoriferous, unless indeed we are inclined to put faith in what has been said about the panther. Chapter 19. The iris. There is still another distinction, which ought not to be omitted, the fact that many of the odoriferous plants never enter into the composition of garlands, the iris and the saliumca, for example, although both of them of a most exquisite odor. In the iris it is the root only that is held in esteem, it being extensively employed in perfumery and medicine. The iris of the finest quality is that found in Illyricum, and in that country, even, not in the maritime parts of it, but in the forests on the banks of the river Drilon, and near Narona. The next best is that of Macedonia, the plant being extremely elongated, white and thin. The iris of Africa occupies the third rank, being the largest of them all, and of an extremely bitter taste. The iris of Illyricum comprehends two varieties, one of which is the raphanitis, so called from its resemblance to the radish, of a somewhat red color, and superior in quality to the other, which is known as the Rhizotomus. The best kind of iris is that which produces sneezing when handled. The stem of this plant is a cubit in length and erect, the flower being of various colours like the rainbow, to which circumstance it is indebted for its name. The iris, too, of Pisidia is far from being held in disesteem. Persons who intend taking up the iris drench the ground about it some three months before with hydromel, as though a sort of atonement offered to appease the earth. With the point of a sword, too, they trace three circles round it, and the moment they gather it they lift it up towards the heavens. The iris is a plant of a caustic nature, and when handled it causes blisters like burns to rise. It is a point particularly recommended, that those who gather it should be in a state of chastity. The root, not only when dried, but while still in the ground, is very quickly attacked by worms. In former times it was Leucas and Elis that supplied us with the best oil of iris, for there it has long been cultivated. At the present day, however, the best comes from Pamphylia, though that of Kilikia and the northern climates is held in high esteem. Chapter 20. The Saliunca The Saliunca has a rather short leaf, which does not admit of its being plaited for garlands, and numerous roots by which it is held together, being more of a herb than a flower, and so closely matted and tangled that it would almost appear to have been pressed together with the hand. In short, it is a turf of a peculiar nature. This plant grows in Pannonia and the sunny regions of Noricum and the Alps, and also the vicinity of the city of Eporidia, the smell being so remarkably sweet that the crops of it have been of late quite as profitable as the working of a mine. This plant is particularly valued for the pleasant smell it imparts to clothes among which it is kept. Chapter 21. The Polium or Truthrion. It is the same, too, with the Polium a herb, employed for a similar purpose among the Greeks, and highly extolled by Museus and Hesiod, who assert that it is useful for every purpose, and more particularly for the acquisition of fame and honour. Indeed, it is a truly marvellous production, if it is the fact, as they state, that its leaves are white in the morning, purple at midday, and azure at sunset. There are two varieties of it, the field polium, which is larger, and the wild, which is more diminutive. Some persons give it the name of Toithrion. The leaves resemble the white hairs of a human being. They take their rise immediately from the root and never exceed a palm in height. End of section 2